Hello, and welcome to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. My name is Jessica, and I'm a fourth year MD PhD student at Penn and the producer for today's episode on simulations in pediatric emergency medicine. Our host today is Dr. Bob Belfer, an attending physician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and a professor of pediatrics at the Perlman School of Medicine. We are thrilled to have joining us today Dr. Yin Tae, an Associate Professor of Clinical Pediatrics at the Perlman School of Medicine and the Associate Director of Simulation for Emergency Medicine and Community Outreach at the Center for Simulation at CHOP. We are also joined today by Dr. Mark Arbach, who is a Professor of Pediatrics and Emergency Medicine at Yale. He was the founding co-chair of INSPIRE, the world's largest simulation-based research network, and is currently the Director of Pediatric Simulation at the Yale Center for Medical Simulation, and is also the Connecticut Director for the Emergency Medical Services for Children's Innovation and Improvement Center. Thank you all so much for being here, and welcome everyone to PIMCAST. Thank you, Jess, and welcome back to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. Listeners, thank you for joining us tonight. I just want to emphasize to you, we are now up to over 1,500 downloads per episode. So again, thank you for listening. Hopefully you're learning something, and please tell your colleagues about the CHOP PEM podcast. Also, thank you for all your feedback. We're getting a lot of feedback from our listening audience. If you do want to reach out to us, the best way to do it is via email. You can email the team at PEM Podcast. That's Pediatric Emergency Medicine, PEM Podcast at chop.edu. Mark and Yen, in addition to all the accolades that Jess uh, talked about, both of you accomplishing in your career, let's start off with an icebreaker question. Okay. Yen, what's your favorite disease to take care of in the ER? Uh, thanks, Bob. One of my favorite diseases to take care of in the emergency department is actually very specific to Philadelphia or the Philadelphia region. It's not Lyme disease, because that would be for Mark. It's actually infant botulism. The botulism spores are endemic in, in this one of the areas around Philadelphia. And so it's, it's actually a disease process that I've seen many times, meaning like five or six times in my career. But that's probably five or six times more than most pediatric emergency medicine physicians, you know, outside of this area and California. That's very, like, it has a very specific presentation, age range, and a, there's a need to get the antidote, basically, which is called baby big. It's the botulism uh, antibodies to into the patient, like in a very short period of time where we have to call California and get it airlifted to Philadelphia and into the patient in a short amount of time. So it's a, it's a kind of a neat presentation and very specific. And there's a, a really great treatment that can really help people. If you can diagnose it quickly and expeditiously. Right. And yet one little tidbit on infant botulism, like you said, in the Philadelphia area, the majority, if not all the cases are outside Philadelphia County. Yeah. Bucks County. Exactly. Well, yes. the, the suburban counties, like you said, where the spores reside, because the spores do not reside in the concrete of Philadelphia. Right. Mark, your favorite disease and why? Yeah. So, yeah, and that's a, that's a neat one. I think that my favorite is along the same lines of I like to be able to fix stuff as an emergency department provider yeah. and fix it in front of me. 
So I think that, you know, SVT and particularly when we can convert SVT with physiologic maneuvers in young infants and put ice on their face and something of that nature, there's something about telling the parents what you're going to be doing that's just mystical and magical. And uh, it really sometimes makes me feel like I'm practicing magic and uh, at the same time after can walk them through how it wasn't magic and how it made a lot of sense and that there is uh, a lot that we understand about how we did that and why it worked. Uh, so I, I think that uh, SVT, for the, from the standpoint of it's a great experience from simulation, but also a mm-hmm. lot of fun to engage with the parents and help to explain to them how something very mystical or magical just made their child go from looking quite gravely ill to actually interacting and playing with them again in a few moments. Mark, we're going to talk a lot more about simulation in the near future. But if you have an SVT case in simulation, do you have the learners take an ice bag and place it on the mannequin's uh, face? We do. I learned that our general emergency medicine physicians are really getting into this procedure where you put the patient uh, upside down. And I did have a general emergency medicine resident recently that picked the baby up by their legs and dangled them upside down because he thought that that's what you were going to do to help do that procedure in a pediatric patient. So we do uh, practice as we play. So we like to uh, try to do as on the mannequins as we do it on the real patient. So yes, we would ask them to go get a bag of ice. Quite frequently, they say, oh, I have ice, and they just pretend to put their hands on the face. I say, no, go get it. Well, where's the, where's the freezer? Where's the ice machine? Uh, and, uh, you know, it's a, a nice little game to play. <laughs> Those are two awesome cases. Thanks, Mark and Yen. We are fortunate enough to have two experts in the field of simulation. And I want to open this podcast by giving a little bit of a background. Yen, Mark, the environment we work in, the emergency department, is very, very complex. We see a huge variety of acute presentations. They vary from common ones like asthma and seizures to rare clinical presentations like cardiac arrest, respiratory arrest, severe chest or abdominal trauma. Treatment for these seriously ill and injured patients, Mark and Yen, you would agree, is time sensitive. And it's very dependent on careful coordination of team performance to ensure efficient and effective patient care. There are a lot of terms that I read about in looking at simulation research. And I wanted to throw a few of those out and have you, Mark and Yen, give your either definitions or how these terms relate to simulation. So Mark, one of the terms I've come across is deliberate practice. What is deliberate practice and how does that relate to simulation? Thank you, Bob. So uh, it's an honor to be here. Uh, So deliberate practice is really uh, getting at the point that all practice is not created equal and it's purposeful. It's happening over time. It involves some repetition, reflection on your performance. It's actually effortful, I think is an important point here. It should be hard where you're talking about your weaknesses, you're getting some feedback, and you're aiming for a specific performance measure in the end, uh, where hopefully you actually you can have some overlearning because uh, I don't know about you, we all forget stuff and we wanna learn such that uh, as we forget stuff, we still remember enough when we're taking care of patients. Great, and Mark, uh, that term deliberate practice, I think it was mentioned in Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers. Now he talks about 10,000 hours to become an expert. Before we scare our audience off, Do they really need 10,000 hours of practice in simulation to become an expert? 
So no, they do not. I, th I think that an important uh, thing to recognize is that deliberate practice is something that, uh, while it was socialized in Malcolm Gladwell's book, goes back to Anders Ericsson, who really uh, wrote about this and in some human performance work and some really fantastic work that he's published on this. And it's about a construct that he looked at in lots of different disciplines that people took about 10,000 hours, but really the intensity of that practice will guide how long this will take. And it's, a, I think, a nice thing to frame, hey, 10,000 hours, you can add that up. It, when we were in 100-hour work weeks that was done by the time we uh, entered fellowship, now with 60-hour work weeks, they, we don't hit that until our second or third years as attendings. But I would say that 10,000 is a nice term to throw around. There's actually been some debate between Gladwell and Erickson talking about this. And Gladwell says that you know it, it was just kind of socializing it with, with, uh, with the uh, sort of cutoff number, and that worked well. Perfect. Yet another term we see in the literature on simulation is something called experiential learning. What is that and how does that relate to simulation? Well, I don't know that I have the um the textbook definition in my mind, but you know, I think it it is basically what you can all imagine it would be is that we learn by doing things, we learn by experiencing things, and it gets solidified in our memories so that when we take it to the next patient that we see or the next scenario, clinical scenario that we want to use the information from before, it's solidified so through the experience of whether it's simulation or a previous experience. Um, and you can recall it quicker and faster than, say, if you had learned something by listening to somebody talk via PowerPoint or something like that. Perfect. Thank you, Yen. The last term, again, before we take a deep dive into simulation, is something called crisis resource management. Never heard the term before. Went to Google. And basically, the term crisis resource management actually has its origins in the aviation industry in the 1970s. Uh, the National Transportation Safety Board found that human error contributed to over 70% of aviation accidents. More in-depth investigations reveal that the majority of errors were related to teamwork failures rather than deficiencies in knowledge or technical skills. Mark, what role does crisis resource management play with simulation? Uh, Bob, if if, uh, if any of our listeners have ever stepped foot in an ED and been involved in a resuscitation, I think we can all attest to the fact that teamwork and communication are, are really critical. Uh, that crisis resource management work was the foundation for uh, actually uh, something called Team Steps, which the AHRQ put out. And it's really a nice taxonomy and nomenclature that many of us use when we're teaching teamwork and team training and crisis resource management in medicine. Uh, I, I would say that one of the things that really made me proud of where simulation has come is I have a colleague who left medical simulation to go back to aviation. He had been in aviation before medical simulation really had taken off many years ago. And uh, when I was chatting with him, he mentioned to me that some of our teamwork trainings have now actually surpassed some of the work being done in aviation. And, and really, that makes sense because aviation, there's a cockpit, it's a controlled environment. And while many people use aeronautics and aviation as something that sort of is an exemplar of the effectiveness of simulation-based training, I would say that medicine is so much more complex. Uh, and not only the patient, but the teams we're working with, hopefully our nurse listeners, our paramedic listeners, our tech listeners, our physicians, and then that continuum of learners. 
there's just so many people and so much going on, uh, but certainly a really valuable experience in any of the simulations that we're teaching here at Yale. And, and yeah, and I'd expect the same is true down at CHOP that almost all of our simulations do have teamwork and communication as some of the learning objectives. Great, Mark. So I guess we can share with our the parents of our patients that our patients are safer in the emergency department than they are in an airplane. Is that correct? <laughs> All right. We've talked a lot about review, teamwork, and the word practice. Mark, attending and listening to some of your lectures on simulation, you usually start many of your lectures with a football quote. You want to share that with our listening audience? Yeah. So uh, for those uh, NFL fans out there, the uh, quote is by Vince Lombardi, and it's that practice does not make perfect, but perfect practice makes perfect. And Bob, this is really getting at what I was mentioning with that construct of deliberate practice. Uh, it's not just showing up to practice. It's not just showing up to the Sim Center, but it's being engaged and really uh, being deliberate and actually working really hard and sometimes incurring what uh, can be quite challenging for us to see what we don't know and, and reflecting on that and trying to improve. Mark, thank you for sharing those last few words with our audience. But Yen and I know in Philadelphia, practice has a different definition. Okay. In 2002, practice was defined by a star in Philadelphia. Claire, can we go to cut three and hear a little bit about practice? from none other than Allen Iverson. I mean, how silly is that? I mean, we're talking about practice. I know I'm supposed to be there. I know I'm supposed to lead by example. I know that. And I'm not I'm not shoving it aside, you know, like it don't mean anything. I know it's important. I do. I honestly do. But we're talking about practice, man. What are we talking about? Practice? We're talking about practice, man. We're talking we're talking about practice. We're talking about practice. We ain't talking about the game. We're talking about practice, man. Mark, if it's okay, Yen and I have agreed to use your definition of practice and not, not Allen Iverson's. Is that okay, Mark? <laughs> It, it is, and it's it's kind of a you know a, a, it's it's a, a impressive definition that he gives, and I would say that uh, dealing with some of the naysayers with simulation, we do hear some similar sentiments. Yeah, and I, I don't know about yeah. down there in Chop, but up here at Yale, you know, it's just a sim. I wouldn't have done that in in real life, or why do I need to do this? So uh, I, I would say that we all have Allen Iversons within our units. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and especially AI, he's a. Uh... He's all about himself um, and like being the leader and, and everything, all the performance really is like distilled down to him and his performance. And we all know that that's not how anything really works in the real world. So I think, I think it's funny. It's so Philly. <laughs> it, it is, Yen. And Yen and I, Mark, are fortunate enough to work here in Philadelphia and work under the supervision, under the mentorship of two greats in pediatric emergency medicine, Steve Ludwig and Fred Henretic. And they has taught us there are numerous ways to learn. And back in the day, Mark and Yen, it was the philosophy, see one, do one, teach one. Okay. And then also clinical experience. You spend 30 shifts in a month in the pediatric ER, you get a vast amount of clinical experience, and that's how you learn. So I want to sort of get into the meat of this topic now. Define for us, Yen, what is simulation-based education? And why is simulation, I wouldn't say replacing the C1, do one, teach one, or the clinical experience, but give us a high-level view, why is that so important now for our learners? 
Well, in my mind, simulation-based education is is a supplement to clinical-based education. As you're saying, you know, back in the day, 30 shifts in a 31-day month, that's a, that's a lot of time that you're spending in the emergency department. And and it's, you know, the, if you're a trainee, you're the frontline person for all of those experiences. Nowadays, things are a lot more diluted because we've realized that it's not actually healthy to do that. But at the same time, there are a lot more, there are a lot more trainees, there are a lot more people that are working clinically. And so any one person's individual experience clinically in, in the pediatric emergency room, for instance, is, is a lot more diluted than it was, um, you know, 25 years ago or 30 years ago when, when um, pediatric emergency medicine was started. That combined with the fact that critical illness and critical procedures in children are actually very rare compared to adults, there's just no way for one EM or pediatric EM provider to really see everything in their training nowadays. And so it's, um, and, you know, as one can even argue, like in your career, there, there are probably things that you might never, ever see. So simulation-based education really is a way to kind of supplement and augment your clinical experience and training. Great. Yeah, and I like those two words, supplement and augment the traditional ways that many of our learners learned over the decades. Mark, anything to add? Simulation-based education. Yeah, so, so a couple of things. I, I think a key, a key thing that I always like to stress and, 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 and uh, when we're talking to people about doing simulation, I know that Yen and I often experience this, that they think it's about the physical object and that really it's the technique and that the techniques that we're talking about, I don't want to bore you with the uh, medical education theory that, that Yen and I try to apply, but really those techniques just try to replace and amplify our experiences and allow for guided experience that are interactive. And, and really, uh, I would say that the lay public, going back to the aviation piece and my discussions with people outside of medicine, they just assume we do this. You know, you don't show up to your flight and say, hey, Bob, you're the pilot of this plane. You know, is this your do one after seeing one and that you're going to teach one next? And I think <laughs> this, uh, you know, ethical and moral imperative to make sure that the care we're providing to patients is the same care that we want for our own children. And that really, I think, drives a lot of what we do in simulation, that we want to make sure that when people are practicing on plastic, uh, an error is a high five moment. When you're taking care of a patient, an error can kill someone. Absolutely. I think of simulation, Mark and Yen, as sort of concentric circles. You have all the clinical cases, and we're going to talk about some specific ones that simulation is best for. That's the first circle. That's a small circle. The circle around it is the rest of the ER team, the doctors, the nurses, the respiratory therapists, and even the electronic medical record. And I know, Yen, you've incorporated the EMR into simulations that we run at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And that third and bigger concentric circle is systems integration, okay? So we incorporate the ICU, the OR, the blood bank, pharmacy. Yen, talk to us about what I call concentric circles, but the different systems that need to be integrated in addition to the case, the four-year-old who comes in seizing. You need to look at multiple other different systems to run a successful simulation, as Mark pointed out to have success with patient outcomes? Yeah, I mean, I think at, at the center of it, we all think about just the knowledge piece. And so, you know, simulation at its core can be used to disseminate and agree upon the medical knowledge around, you know, treating a four-year-old that comes in with seizure. But then, you know, outside of that, 
there's a whole lot of things that need to happen and be coordinated, you know, with the different team members that we talked about, whether it's the the nurses, the pharmacists, the techs, and everybody has a role. And, um, you know, that's like one of the biggest things that we talk about in crisis resource management, some of those techniques when we talk about it in medical simulation is just how is everybody coordinating their specific role to make this entire team perform the best that they can for this patient. And then outside of that, you know, we're all interacting with the different systems in the hospital, whether it is, you know, do you get the medication from the Pixis, which is right in the room, or do you have to put a order in and order it from pharmacy? And how long does that actually take? So, you know, there's a, there are a lot of ways to use simulation, and I think they're all very effective when put in use in the right way. Great. Yeah. And just a follow-up to that, personnel, doctors, mm-hmm. nurses, and let's specifically focus on doctors. Do you have the first or second year trainee in pediatrics or emergency medicine run the resuscitation when in actuality, the attending in most cases when a critically ill child comes in is going to be the one running the code. So talk to us about the roles that you assign, and let's focus on the physician roles. I think it really depends on who your learner group is. A lot of times we'll actually take a group of trainees and kind of put them together in a simulation with nurses and techs and try to get them to kind of elevate their kind of their practice to like step into that role that we know that they're going to be in very shortly, you know, within a a couple of years, they will be in those kind of leadership roles. So yeah, we do definitely put them into those roles, but they're in very specific simulations where that have very specific learning objectives for them. If we're doing, you know, more interprofessional simulations or more systems and process simulations, then we're really trying to get at, you know, how is this really going to work in real life when we implement let's say a pathway change or let's say, you know, a new, you know, a new way to, you know, do ECMO for our hospital. And that in those cases, we would actually put the attendings in because we want we really want to do we really do want to see how things are going to work in real life with the real people, the actual people in their roles, um, making decisions that they would make in real life. I think that's an important point, Yen. Mark, both you and Yen have trained and currently work in academic centers, tertiary care, children's hospitals. Mark, talk to us. Simulation sounds like it's great for these academic centers, but talk to us. Is there a role for simulation in the community ER setting? Yeah, so thanks, Bob. Uh, I feel like you teed that one up for me. So uh, certainly something I'm passionate about is the fact that over 85% of children are cared for outside of our children's hospitals in the United States. So actually, we care for the minority of children, even though we care for only children. And the most common experience in EDs is that an ED would take care of lots of adults and a few kids and have a really sick child happening on a very infrequent basis. And this is the same for EMS as well, where a very few percentages of each EMS run would involve a sick child. Uh, So uh, what Yen, myself, and others have done is worked to take that simulation to that systems level and bring it out to those community hospitals. And I think there's a twofold purpose there. I just want to come back that Yen mentioned. There's sim for training, where we're working with these providers who maybe need a refresher on their skills that they've taken care of adult seizures a hundred times in the past year, but haven't taken care of a pediatric seizure, just to use Yen's example. But then there's also the systems testing or simulation as a measurement methodology or a system probe 
And really, uh, that is so critical because these providers are not using the pediatric equipment very frequently, and we have identified what we term latent safety threats, so issues in these community hospitals that by detecting them in simulation can actually prevent downstream harm when a, a child does come into that hospital. So working as an academician, I think that the you know, mission of our children's hospital to care for children is not to care for children that present to our hospitals, but to care for all children. Uh, so I, I would implore our listeners to consider expanding their simulation and education efforts outside of the walls of their hospitals if they work in children's hospitals. Great, Mark. And at toward the tail end of the, this uh, podcast, we're going to talk about some of the resources that both you and Yen have initiated, originated, and provided to the community setting. So stay tuned. Yen, some people say the technology, it's expensive to get all the different monitoring, mannequins, bells and whistles that come with the technology. And that's why simulation hasn't been embraced by everyone. Talk to us. Do you need costly technology to run a successful simulation-based education program? Thanks, Fab. Um, absolutely not. Um, it is really helpful, and it is makes it more fun when you can play, you know, when you can make mannequins do things and, you know, really kind of create a very realistic environment for people. But there are many ways, the term we use often is like low-fidelity there are many low fidelity ways to create a simulation based curriculum for for people as long as you can create a situation that people can really buy into so at the beginning of every simulation we really try to get people to kind of immerse themselves in the situation we ask them to suspend disbelief as much as possible and we ask them to sign a fiction contract as long as they can go in and you know, take a look at a moving or a not moving doll. You could even have a pillow. But as long as they can actually see what's in front of them as uh, the next patient that they're going to take care of, and they can talk to each other as they would talk in real life, you can still get a really rich discussion out of it. You can still find that they will do certain things or make certain actions that can be discussed further. And at the end of the day, when you ask them if they all learn something, everybody will say that they will have definitely taken something away from that experience. There's also now, like in the age of COVID, I know Mark has um, done a lot as well in trying to pivot our simulation-based activities from in-person to the virtual space, whether it's uh, the virtual resuscitation room or telesim options. Um, there are a lot of non-mannequin-based, non-machine-based ways to disseminate knowledge and information and create training environments that people can learn from. That's great, Yen. And uh, Mark, Yen used the term suspend disbelief. And I know that's usually the first thing that facilitators say when we walk into the simulation room. Mark, tell us, what allows some simulation participants to fully believe or immerse themselves in simulation while others, and I'll put myself in that class, struggle to pretend? I guess I wasn't good with imagination yeah, in uh, nursery yeah. school. So, <laughs> yeah. so, so help us out, Mark. Yeah. So I think the imagination and nursery school thing is a great example. So as part of my pre-brief, I often bring up the Disney World example. And I can spend, uh, it's probably like 500 bucks to go to Disney World now. I don't know. It's really expensive. But I can have a really fancy simulator. I can go to a really fancy experience. And maybe, Bob, you need that to have fun. But I could also go back outside and have fun in my yard and play games and do things that I, I can hopefully uh, put, create a experience that might be as good as Disney World with my kids or with my friends. 
And I would say for the simulation experience, yes, it probably is a little bit easier when you are at Disney World to take things seriously. Uh, but just like uh, the um, Disneyification of uh, you know the experience, we can uh, do some things that actually are not involving the objects, but actually involving setting the stage. So a lot of what makes Disney so realistic is the vibe, right? The once in a lifetime experience. So I think that people like Yen, and I've seen Yen pre-brief and take people through this experience, that facilitator is often a key component of this. And then the culture of simulation. The culture of simulation for our newer learners is really, it comes naturally to them. Uh, for those of us that did not do simulation as often, the culture is a little bit more off-putting. So I think that most of that realism does come from, and that ability to suspend disbelief does come from the person and their prior experiences and the facilitator. And really, we can't force someone to suspend disbelief. We just want them to do the best they can. Great. I have a technical question. Yeah, maybe you can answer. You're mm -hmm. running through a simulation, trying to suspend disbelief. I've seen some facilitators use timeouts. Okay, I'm used to timeouts in the NBA or the NFL, mm -hmm. but should a good facilitator, if things are going awry or maybe there's a point to be made, how many timeouts you are, are you allowed in the simulation yet? <laughs> <laughs> what is it in the NBA six now? I think it's seven, believe it or not. Those games go on forever. <laughs> they get extra commercial money for that. I was going to say. <laughs> What, what's, what, what do you get in the timeout and do you get a 20 second timeout or is it a full, you know, timeouts can be helpful tools. You don't always have to have a timeout. I think that use, using timeouts are helpful if you think it's going to help get the team kind of back on track. And if you think that if they go off the rails and then you kind of try to debrief it later, is it more helpful to kind of like timeout, see where they are, get them kind of back in the right mindset and then let them kind of succeed. I think um, from there, I think, I think timeouts can be helpful, especially if you feel like other people are, you know, people are getting frustrated within the simulation. And I think it will, it'll help you debrief in the end when you can, if you can talk about it. Um, I don't know if that makes as much sense as I thought I was going to make, but um, I, I don't think you always have to time out in simulation, but I do think that there is a role for it, especially if things aren't going as you feel like they should be going as a facilitator. I don't know, Mark, if you have thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. If I can dovetail on that. So I, I've actually started to use this term with my learners of constructive friction. If you're so uncomfortable that it's destructive friction and you're not learning anything, call a timeout. And, and, and I think that we need to be careful about, you know, allowing people to get down that rabbit hole and have that negative experience. So they're not going to want to come back to the simulation in the future. The other benefit of timeouts from an educational theory standpoint really gets at this concept of reflection in action, where you're able to ask your facilitator a question that something's just killing you because you don't know what to do and you feel stupid, but now I can pause, ask in, and then have the opportunity to provide that knowledge. That's something called reflection in action versus debriefing, which we'll come to later, I'm sure, which is reflection on action, where I go through an experience and then I actually reflect on that experience. And I, I love sports, so I'll use the example of the sort of pre-snap huddle versus the off-the-field timeout. I, I really like mm -hmm. the pre-snap huddle kind of timeouts. Yeah. Right. Again, as I'm listening to both of you, and I'm sure our listeners are sort of concerned too, the role of the facilitator seems pretty difficult. Do you use the model of train the trainer? And I know, Yen, you alluded to telesim, where a small group, let's say, of expert facilitators could really disseminate simulation to the community. So talk to us. Can anyone be a facilitator 
Do you need to be trained? Do you need 10,000 hours of training? I guess we don't need for that. But talk to us about how the role of a facilitator, I don't know, makes or breaks the simulation. Mark, you want to take that first? Yeah. Uh, so so I think that um, there's um, expert facilitators, just like there's experts in every field. And, and what we've tried to do with disseminating simulation to the masses with some of the work that Yem mentioned is using something called scripted debriefing or scripted facilitation, where you can take some of those best practices and give someone a script or a list. I like to use the example of Blue Apron or one of the meal delivery services that you don't need to be an expert chef and you just have the checklist. Obviously, your meal is better if you're getting Jacques Pepin or some expert chef preparing it, but having that recipe and not just the recipe, but all the ingredients there for you, I think is incredibly helpful. I have to say that Yen and I have both completed additional training in debriefing and facilitation, and I would strongly encourage individuals, if you get a taste for simulation, excuse the pun with the cooking there, that you should move on. And most of your uh, hospitals or regional sim centers likely do have facilitator development courses. Yeah, and maybe you could comment on some of those courses at CHOP. Thanks, Mark. The Simulation Center at CHOP offers a facilitator course where it's a three-day course where they actually you know, do a lot of role play. They first talk a little bit about adult learning theory, a lot of the different taxonomies of uh, learning objectives and goals and, and how to create a, an effective simulation. But then the rest is really about facilitation and debriefing and really how to set the stage for effective facilitation, you know, get your learners bought in, suspend disbelief. And then we really try to, at CHOP, try to do a much more of like a learner-centered debriefing versus a teacher or facilitator-centered debriefing which is, you know, basically the facilitator saying, these are my learning goals and objectives for you. Let's talk about what you did. And then I'll tell you like all the different things about seizure that everybody needs to know and leave before they go. And, you know, learner-centered debriefing is really taking the scenario and the experience of the simulation and really seeing what it is that the learners want to learn about, what it is that they are reflecting on. And, um, and the facilitator really becomes a guide and not as much a teacher. And so you find that, you know, within your learner group, there's a lot of teaching of each other and there's a lot of ability for the facilitator to just kind of guide the discussion so that people are learning all the things that they need to. Because really, the medical knowledge usually is within the group and it's just the facilitator who's going to help the group elevate themselves to talk about it amongst themselves. Perfect. You both mentioned uh, the fact that critically ill children, the number of procedures we perform in the ER are not great numbers. Mark, talk to us about the small role, in some cases, sometimes bigger, of procedure skills or improving procedure skills in simulation. And Mark, if you could sort of tell us, are there outcomes? In other words, does working in a simulation lab doing certain procedures show better outcomes when we're faced with the real patient? Yeah, thanks, Bob. So actually, procedures are one of the areas that there are really a, a strong a preponderance of evidence that when procedural simulation is done under the right conditions and done well, uh, that it can prove outcomes. Uh, the two conditions that come to my mind are work uh, in uh, the Chicago area related to central line training, where they really have demonstrated not only improvements in patient outcomes and central line infections, but actually that simulation can be cost effective, that you are saving money by doing simulation. The other that's a little bit more pediatric sensitive is related to shoulder dystocia. 
And there's strong evidence from the UK that in a population-based study over about 20 years with shoulder dystocia skills training, that there were uh, a reduction down to zero now of shoulder dystocias in that region with herbs palsy. But the uh, skills training really, in my mind, Bob, there's a couple ways we could frame this. One is patient safety. And really, that's understanding when someone is unconsciously incompetent, really getting at that provider that should not, no matter what, even with supervision, performing a skill and trying to move them to a place where they are consciously incompetent and hopefully have someone like you, Bob, or Yen, or myself that can coach them through this. So I would say that for most of our procedural skills, we really need to talk about entrustment and when someone's prepared to perform that procedure and follow procedural skills training best practices where really many of the things we talked about before, deliberate practice, going through lots and lots of times after you've understood those cognitive pieces, those foundational pieces, and practicing until you are ready to perform on a patient, but still potentially with some supervision. Mark, you've published and also speak about another procedure, cardiac compressions in cardiorespiratory arrest. Talk to us about the role of CPR in simulation and how that affects the patients uh, in, in real life. Yeah, I've read something this week that uh, there's been a billion AHA courses with the Laredal mannequin, uh, and they just passed that. But I would say that cardiac arrest is certainly a high stakes, but exceedingly low frequency area in pediatrics. And one of the things that teams have done in cardiac arrest simulation-based research is really started to untangle not only how to best train for skills, but also to how to choreograph and best function as teams. And for CPR training, one of the really exciting changes that's happened through the AHA is actually uh, myself, Adam Cheng, and, and a group of others were able to work with the AHA to publish educational guidelines and educational best practices to ensure that that was being used. So things like CPR feedback devices are now required in AHA courses. And understanding from those devices, am I pushing hard enough? Am I pushing fast enough? And getting that data and actually getting a score is a real move where I think we can get to a point where people are not just showing up, have someone check them off because they can push on a chest and and moving towards, you know, you need to be doing this, pushing hard, pushing fast, few interruptions. And that work has really demonstrated live saved. Providing higher quality CPR is associated in both children and adults with live saved. That is awesome news. Over the last few decades, Yen, We've seen hospitals, both academic hospitals and community hospitals, spend tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars for a simulation lab, and then they advertise it, okay? I believe, Yen, these have fallen out of favor. Most of the simulations that I attend, and I see that you and Mark run, they're done in the ER proper. Talk to us about what we would call in situ or in the ER simulation versus the center-based simulation lab simulations. Thanks, Bob. Um it was not my choice. Trap does not have a center, a simulation center, uh, like an actual brick and mortar one, because there's we are so bought into the the benefits or the pros of in situ simulation. I think there's pros and cons to each. You know, one of the biggest benefits for in situ simulation, so in the ED, especially if you're going out to do outreach at, in other emergency departments is really you get those participants to practice and to take care of patients using in their own environment, using their own equipment, whether they have it or not. So that's like, you know, the benefit of finding out these latent safety threats that Mark had mentioned earlier. 
Like you won't do that if you're in a, in a center-based um, simulation lab. But if you can bring the simulation to the people in the space that they're actually providing care for children, it's, it's so much more rich. You're going to get so much more out of it. It's so much easier for the participants to suspend disbelief because they are in their environment that that this patient, this mannequin in front of them could be the next, you know, four-year-old that they do see, you know, when they leave the training session. So there's so many benefits to in situ, in my opinion. There are cons, I guess, you know, if you're using a clinical space, it may be too busy um, in the emergency department to, to do it, or something more like very uh, emergent may come in and kind of bump you out. So those are some of the, the cons. I think the pros of the center is that, you know, you're not going to disrupt clinical care. You can use equipment over and over again, and you don't have to worry about opening up something that is expensive, for instance, because you've already kind of designated it for educational use. There's storage space, because as you can imagine, all these mannequins and equipment is uh, uh, can take up a lot of room. But I think the con of the center base is that, um, it, again, it's harder to suspend disbelief. You have to travel to somewhere. It doesn't look anything like the space that you're in, um, usually. And there is a, a pretty large um, startup. Uh, fee to to get in. Yeah, that's a good segue to budget. Okay, Mark, we talked about you don't need a, a large budget technology wise. You said you could put a pillow there and suspend disbelief and say that's the patient. Mark, talk to us about the use of audio clips, video clips, even pictures of patients, rashes, X-rays of patients, and how that augments or how that enhances a simulation experience. Yeah, thanks, Bob. So just as Yem mentioned, you know, real is real. So if you have the real equipment, that's fantastic. If you have videos or pictures of real patients um, or laboratory data or images, all of those things will take even someone like you, Bob, and get them to suspend disbelief because it looks just like your electronic medical record. It looks just like your radiograph that you would see. So I think that use of those things are really something that at, to this point has been limited by our technologies. I think as we move towards something called extended reality, where some simulation companies are now working and there's an obstetric simulator, there's not as many pediatric ones that do this, but where you actually wear some goggles and you see what looks like a, a real patient overlaid on top of that plastic that you can touch and see emotions, see bleeding, see organs uh, for surgical simulations, uh, those things all will dramatically improve the fidelity or realism, as Yen mentioned. I think that our current mannequins, uh, I describe them as uh, costing as much as my car, but not being that much better than my Cabbage Patch Kid when I was a kid. <laughs> and I, I think that uh, there's a long way to go. Uh, but I think that with a use of technology and things like YouTube and other free open access resources, you may be able to actually beat out some of those higher cost mannequins and simulators with free resources in these days. Great. And Mark, we will talk, not only talk, but also publicize the, the resources uh, that you and Yen are involved in. Yen, a question, the simulation cases that you run that you facilitate, all mm -hmm. high acuity, all are high acuity events. My question for you is, do you focus on high frequency events, asthma, seizures, or do you focus on low frequency events like cardiac arrest, respiratory arrest? What is your experience and what would you share with our listeners? My experience is that it really depends on who your learners are. If you're teaching if we're if my learners for a session are 
pediatric residents or pediatric or emergency medicine residents, I really want them to get the high frequency stuff that they're going to see in their careers. I want them to get that right. And it's a lot of right, right? That you have to get their medical knowledge, you know, make sure their medical knowledge is right, but also just the way that they talk and communicate. If they're going to, we're going to send these people out to be, you know, leading resuscitations or leading a, a child that's in respiratory distress because of asthma, which they're going to see probably once a shift. I want to make sure that they're doing that right. Um, and they're, they're getting the feedback as they're training for that. If we are, you know, training faculty, pediatric emergency medicine faculty, you know, I know that all of my colleagues see asthma all the time. And it may be that, you know, once in a while, we're going to have them, you know, just practice an asthma scenario, but more so than not, we're actually going to try to think of some of the lower frequency things that we know that we don't see a lot so that we can practice, you know, coming together as a team to take care of these patients that we don't see that often. It really, de- it really depends on, you know, who we're creating these simulation scenarios for. I see. And yeah, and, and, and I have a term that I like to throw out, I doto. Uh, it depends on the objectives. I yes. doto. I doto. And I, I think like that, that um, you know, if you take that frame, actually, Bob, I think Yen and I have shifted from I'm going to do an asthma simulation to trying to think about what I want my learners to understand. So understanding how to approach a patient in acute respiratory distress. And for our faculty, I would say that those objectives are probably something that per- they're pretty comfortable with. Um, and uh, it's all about the objectives. Uh, you know, if our learners are finding that those objectives aren't right for them, as Yen mentioned, then the beauty of sim is unlike a lecture where they just fall asleep in the sim, we can adapt and shift things on the fly. Great. That's yes. perfect. That's the fun. That's the fun of it. That's right. <laughs> all right. So, so I'm listening over the last 30 or so minutes. Mark, I think you've convinced me. I have now a firm believer in suspended belief. Disbelief. I'm sorry. Uh, I may. I may actually book a <laughs> trip to. Di- I may actually uh, book a trip to Disney World. And now that it's uh, well, somewhat getting safer. Let me shift gears and ask you something. Over the last decade or so, family-centered care has sort of taken over. And I guess for some of our more seasoned listeners, when we broke news to a family, bad news, a tough diagnosis, a lot of times I'd bring one of the trainees in with me just to listen to hear how I would break that news to the family, to witness the reaction of the family. Both of you have incorporated breaking difficult news, breaking a new diagnosis, talking to a family after the death of a patient, or even an error in care. You've used simulation to teach our learners those skills. Talk to us a little bit about that, Mark. Yeah, so Bob, I, I think that one of the most high fidelity or real simulators are people. So standardized patients are simulators and they're not technology, they're people, but we really try our best in our simulations to always involve a family. So we hit teamwork, we hit resuscitation. The IDOTO, the three groups of objectives that we have for all of our sims here are teamwork and communication, family-centered care and resuscitation. We're toying around now with adding health equity and diversity, equity, inclusion into those uh, that grouping. But having family members play a role in the simulation is so critical. And those families can not only inform the design of the simulation, but also participate in the debriefing. And it's so uncommon that people get to get that feedback from a family member oftentimes about what they did well and understanding that they did a really good job and that they have skills in this. 
But I would say that family-centered care and trauma-informed care are another set of skills that simulation can help to bring to the bedside and allow us to reflect uh, sometimes through discussion, but actually sometimes through watching a video where we see how it looked when we broke bad news. And in our group, uh, we don't do this as often in the ED, but up in the ICU, we work with our colleagues, and I know at CHOP as well, and they do a lot of work to help with things like death disclosure and breaking bad news in those situations and allow for video review and really polishing and developing those skills again through deliberate practice. Perfect. I want to finish up our podcast, Mark and Yen, by talking about how we finish up a simulation. And uh, at times, the simulation itself takes 10 minutes, and then we have a 40-minute period of time, and you call that debriefing. Yen, what are the goals of debriefing? How long or short should it be? And tell us the role of the facilitator in debriefing. I think it could probably be different, and I would love to hear how Mark does this as well. But I'll start out by saying our, the goal for debriefing, um, in my mind, is to basically reflect on what happened in the simulation. So reflection on action, as Mark mentioned before, in order to kind of help each other learn from, from that experience. The general rule that I always learned was that however long the simulation is, you should probably at least double the time of debrief. So if you have a 10-minute simulation, you're probably, you hope to be talking about what happened in that simulation for at least 20 minutes. But I often find that a 10-minute simulation, could you could talk for an hour, you know, depending on the group um, and depending on what happened. So those are kind of the guidelines. But um, I like to structure my debriefs um, in kind of three stages. And as I learned, you know, through taking the facilitator course, I love to give the participants a time to kind of just get some of their emotions out. So kind of, kind of the emotions phase. So once you, they can get their emotions out, they can really start to like reflect without emotion on some of their actions. Um, that's the hope, at least. Uh, then I like to se segue into talking about teamwork and communication, because that is such an important part of any simulation um, or any scenario that we train. And then talking at least a little bit about the medical knowledge piece and then kind of conclude and making sure that everybody has learned something and make sure that debrief has kind of followed the guidelines of the learning objectives that we set out for them. The, the facilitator, like I said earlier, is really, I'm always hopeful as a facilitator that I can just act as a guide. I don't not there to be the expert. I'm not there to be a judger or an evaluator. Um, and just there to kind of help the group talk about what happened, things that went well, really highlight the things that went well, solidify that practice, and then talk about things that could have been improved. Mark, I'm going to give you a chance to talk about debriefing. I just want you to focus a little bit on constructive criticism. Let's say the simulation went awry. They, they missed some important aspects as far as drug delivery, CPR, et cetera. How do you give feedback, Mark, without, let's use the term, humiliating the learners during the debriefing uh, portion of the simulation? Yeah, so uh, one of the uh, foundational articles in simulation-based ed education is called Debriefing with Good Judgment. And really, there's no such thing as non-judgmental debriefing. People always think you're judging them. So I think that you know one of the frames that we will use is something called advocacy inquiry, where we actually talk about in that facilitation that Yem was mentioning, what you noticed, what you saw, 
what you think. So, Bob, I saw that you were providing compressions below the recommended rate. I think that that's problematic. How did you see your compressions? What were your thoughts at that time? And being able to explore that and deepen my understanding of what was going through your mind. Did you know the wrong rate? Is it something that you just didn't know what rate to push at? Were you distracted? Were you tired? So I think that that focus facilitation is a real skill and maintaining psychological safety, maintaining the safety of that individual so you're not entering that destructive phase is a real challenge. And recognizing when and if you do, and uh, Yen and I both have experienced the need to at times do a post-debrief debrief, where you'll come to a learner and say, you know, let's go get a cup of coffee, let's talk for a little bit, because you do want to balance what is constructive friction with destructive friction, but sometimes we pass the line. It's, it's just a fact of the matter that, you know, to do this well, you want people to be somewhat uncomfortable. But I think that advocacy inquiry model where we are actually giving our judgment doing it in a way that is concrete, but also asking for an individual on their perspective and the why. Perfect. Now, I want to just come full circle. We talked about educating learners. Let me ask you, Yen, are there any regulatory requirements, whether for residency or fellowship, that require simulation-based education, or is that the future? That's a great question, Bob. I, I, I don't actually know of any requirements for simulation-based education. There are certainly in training, whether it's pediatric training or emergency medicine training or training for any profession, that there are probably certain procedural and experiential requirements that, you know, you you must get to this level or you must at least document that you've experienced these things. But I don't think that there's a, and Mark, definitely please correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think that there's a, a simulation requisite for those things. A lot of programs will use simulation to fulfill some of those, whether it's procedural or experiential requirements, but I'm not aware of simulation-based requirements. I don't know, Mark, you might be. Yeah, yeah. Not within pediatrics uh, from national accrediting bodies. Within anesthesia, there's something called maintenance of certification. And those are what we call formative assessments, meaning you just need to participate in simulation. And then for things like laparoscopic surgeons, there are actually summative assessments that they need to meet a minimum standard and pass. Within emergency medicine, though, Yen, I think that you bring up a really important concept here. And Bob, you hit this with the procedures, that simulation-based experiences can actually go into individuals' procedural logs in both emergency medicine and pediatrics. And our pediatric emergency medicine fellows can also document those. So this is a way that people can achieve their you know, learning objectives for fellowship, residency, nursing school, and the like. And you know, this is where some of us have focused on creating curricula. So recently, we developed a general emergency medicine pediatric curriculum for simulation and really tried to focus on the things that we felt were needed to be done during simulation. So something like a case that would be seen every day and uh, perhaps a laceration repair probably does not need simulation for an EM resident, but something that is far more uncommon like congenital adrenal hyperplasia, it's going to be really hard for someone to have that experience a, in a predictable manner in their residency without having simulation. Perfect. Well, uh, Mark and Yen, I want to thank you. I just want to conclude with some of the resources that both of you are involved in. Mark, tell us about the ASEP SIM box, or even the TeleSIM box, that is basically an off-the-shelf resource 
And again, I will have links to the resources that both Mark and Yen are going to comment on in a second on our newsletter. So Mark, what is the ASEP Simbox or TeleSimbox? Yeah, so ASEP Simbox, we had the name ASEP in there when we started this work. This was part of an ASEP grant. Uh, at this point, it's expanded beyond that. And we're really trying to create off-the-shelf resources for both in-person and virtual simulations that allow people to go online, access our site, pull down a interactive PDF that walks them through a scripted pre-brief and debrief, and then watch a video that is what I like to call a sim on rails. So you lose the technology standpoint of having a sophisticated programmable mannequin, but the facilitator can actually guide individuals such that that video of vital signs and actually my son, other individuals, children acting in these cases can allow for a experience that uh, I would hope is sufficient to have a very effective and productive debriefing. Uh, another resource that I would want to comment on, Bob, is um, the uh, resource called Virtual Resuscitation Room, which is another online-only simulation resource. And then for those looking at debriefing, there's a site called Debrief to Learn that my colleague Adam Chang has created that really, I think, is a fantastic resource for anyone that wants to get more uh, engaged in debriefing activities. And there's free resources available on that site. And lastly, Mark, I know you're very involved in Spire Network. Tell uh, our listeners if they want to, if they have become stimulated by this simulation podcast and they want to get involved, be leaders. Uh, talk to us about some of the associations or networks of simulation experts. Yeah, so there's a lot of communities within simulation. I think within pediatric simulation, we've uh, uh, had the opportunity to engage in one of the largest research networks in the simulation space. I think it still is the largest. I'm really excited. I was hoping you were going to ask me about my proudest moment in my career, Bob, as you have on other podcasts. Go but ahead, I would Mark. Say that yeah. that, that uh, this year we reached the 10-year anniversary of Inspire, and and uh, it's just amazing. So Yen, myself, Vinayna Carney down at Chop, Dave Kessler, Adam Chang, many others were sitting around a table having some discussions about how we could begin to collaborate on simulation-based research, and that was a decade ago. And we founded this network, and we really focused the work of that network on taking individuals that are passionate and interested about getting involved in pediatric simulation and leveraging their careers through mentorship, through relationship building, and more information can be found at inspiresim.com. And really that proud moment came when I saw that we were 10 years out. I actually have really stepped down more into an advisor role and attended a meeting and really was amazed at the amount of mentorship that my mentees were doing. And it really was one of those points where I said, wow, I actually did something here along with a group of friends to create something that's sustainable. And I consider Yen and Vinay Nakarni down at CHOP amongst that uh, initial group. Well, what a spectacular group. That's so uh, nice of you, Mark. I, I consider you one of my mentors still. So uh, I appreciate that. Let's, let's take one minute. The future. Yen, obviously on a daily basis uh, in between uh, being a physician, a parent, uh, a workout guru. Yeah. You're also spending a lot of time on simulation. Tell our listeners, what's the future of, of simulation? What are you working on now? What things do you hope to accomplish, let's say, in the next few months, years in the field of simulation? Well, thanks, Bob. This, this is exciting. Um, I am in my somewhat limited career in simulation at this point. Um, I've really found that while I love teaching medical trainees, I really love teaching 
colleagues and faculty and in the community. So it's been really rewarding to be part of projects like Impacts that Mark actually started many, many years ago, which is uh, an acronym for Improving Pediatric Acute Care Through Simulation, which is uh, this model that has kind of expanded where we have academic hubs that reach out to these community centers, community EDs, and provide education through simulation. And it's just been very rewarding. And there's so many different outlets for it now. We have impacts for inpatient. We have impacts for a community ED for office-based impacts. And so one thing that I'm really excited about is bringing impacts and bringing simulation and, and the simulation-based education to our EMS colleagues. So that's one thing that I'm really excited about, kind of spearheading. And then I think from a hospital perspective, I feel like CHOP has such a name in the community that we should start to really kind of solidify our efforts in outreach and education. And so that's one of the things that I would really like to start doing, kind of creating a kind of a centralized center for pediatric outreach and education. That is awesome, Yen. Mark, you get the last word, the future of simulation in your eyes. Yeah, so I think the future of simulation, we hit on some of it before with technology, but I think the other future piece is big data. It's the answer to everything for the future, but looking at learning analytics and understanding when people need to have refreshers. And, uh, you know, I think that uh, the more that we can collect data in simulation, which we've always done, but uh, can do that in a more robust way, the more we can understand when someone's intubation skills are beginning to deteriorate and really give them a new dose of simulation to improve their skills. So I think that the augmented reality or extended reality I mentioned is one piece, so expanding our technology. The outreach, as Yen mentioned, what I call democratizing simulation, bringing it to the masses, so getting it out of the academic centers and out to the majority of frontline providers, and then uh, the data piece. So those are the three areas that I'm most excited about seeing progress over the next five to 10 years. That is awesome. I want to thank both of you, Mark and Yen, for your expertise on behalf of the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia Pediatric Emergency Medicine podcast team. And I want to alert our listeners that all the resources and articles that Mark and Yen commented on will be available in e-newsletter form. How do you access the e-newsletter? Go to substack.com and search PEM Podcasts. Again, substack, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K.com search PEM podcast. And in a week or so, you will see all the resources that Mark and Yen have provided. Again, thank you both for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much, Bob. Thank you, Bob. It's been a pleasure.